Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we're diving into the ancient past and finding out about the almost century-long quest to date an ancient skull. And we're learning about an Antarctic rainforest from the Cretaceous. I'm Shamini Bandel. And I'm Nick Howe. So, as regular listeners may be aware, we're all working from home at the moment due to the ongoing pandemic. So, things will probably sound a bit different for the foreseeable future, Shamni, you're on the phone to me now. How are you doing this week? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm en- enjoying being on the phone to you, Nick. Um, <laughs> I'm here at home. I'm, I'm buried under uh, three blankets, a shawl and a duvet for maximum soundproofing. Well, that sounds like very good soundproofing. Last time you sounded almost like you were in a studio, so I think you've got the soundproofing nailed. But on with the show. And first up, we have some breaking news. An ancient hominid skull in fantastic condition has been dug up just 99 years ago. Okay, so maybe this fossil hominid head isn't a brand new discovery, but researchers are still trying to unravel the secrets of the Broken Hill skull, in spite of having had a century to study it since it was dug up in a metal ore mine in what is now Zambia. It was a complete chance discovery. The site had been mined for many years and the miners regularly reported finding bones. This is Chris Stringer, a researcher of human origins at the Natural History Museum in London. Chris and his teammates have been trying to shed light on one of the key questions about this relic, where it fits into human history. Does the skull signify a member of the line that led to Homo sapiens, or is this more of a long-lost cousin? Reporter Adam Levy got in touch and kicked off by asking what's so special about this century-old fossil. It's a beautifully preserved fossil. It's one of the best preserved of all human fossils. It was sent to the Natural History Museum in 1921 and was published soon afterwards in the journal Nature and named as a new human species, Homo rhodesiensis. And what was understood to be the significance of this skull and the species that it represented? Well, when it was discovered, of course, it was the first 
human to be found in Africa. So that was of great significance. And in recent years, the species that is generally assigned to Homo heidelbergensis occupies a really central place in human evolution as a possible ancestor for our species and the Neanderthals. This is a fossil that was dug up, you know, almost 100 years ago now. But understanding actually when the human who it belonged to was walking the earth, that's proved quite difficult, right? Yes, because of the circumstances of a discovery, the fact that this was a metal ore mine, so the discovery was completely uncontrolled. There was no systematic excavation at the time. So that's been one of the problems and estimates of its age have ranged from as young as 50,000 years to as old as a million years. Now, of course, that's not the end of the story because otherwise I wouldn't be phoning you up right now. What was the experience actually like of trying to pin down a data on on the skull? Well, of course, it's it's been in many ways a frustrating experience trying to date the Broken Hill Skull because you know we've been working on this project with colleagues for you know about 20 years and you know the more we did the more we came to realize that the skull must have been deposited and fossilized in a different part of the cave system than everything else that we tried to measure so it was very frustrating it meant that we couldn't get a good proxy by by dating something else in the end we had to try and date the skull itself because the associated materials you know were were different ages and were uncertainly associated so yeah you've got all these kind of associated materials which don't show the age of the skull how do you now investigate the skull itself right yes well we applied direct uranium series dating to the skull itself many years ago you'd have to take a large chunk of a fossil to do this kind of dating whereas now the the method is miniaturized and you can use laser ablation so tiny pinpoint holes are made and the best age estimate we can come up with is that the skull is around 299,000 years because that age of 300,000 not only being quite young it also suggests that Broken Hill was living in Africa alongside other human lineages, other human species, because we've got sapiens-like fossils in places like Morocco and Kenya at about 250, 300,000 years ago. It's a much more complex picture of different human lineages coexisting, and our line of evolution is only one of these, if you like, experiments in human evolution that's going on across the old world. What does that actually tell us, I suppose, to know that there are all these different humans walking about at the same time as each other. Does that change our picture of of our history, of our ancestors' history? Well, certainly it changes it in several ways because, of course, it means that, you know, we, we aren't in that sense special. If you could have travelled back in time 300,000 or 500,000 years ago, you may not have picked the Homo sapiens line as the one that was going to survive and take over you know, from all the others. Another thing I noticed in the paper, which really would seem to turn some ideas on its head, is this idea that um, a lot of the stone tools we're finding maybe can't be credited to our ancestors. Yes, these Middle Stone Age tools uh, have been found at Broken Hill. So Broken Hill, the Broken Hill people, may have been making Middle Stone Age tools. So it means that that industry was not the unique product of Homo sapiens. When we find it somewhere... We can't automatically assume that Homo sapiens was the maker of those stone tools. Now, it's already 100 years since this skull was dug up. Do you think 
at this point, that's the end of the story? Or do you think there are more secrets to come from the Broken Hill Skull? Oh, I'm sure it's not the end of the story because, of course, dating methods are improving and changing all the time. There could be completely new dating methods in the future that could be applied to the skull. It's possible that we could get proteomic evidence. So proteins can survive where DNA doesn't survive. So for Broken Hill, if we can get fossil proteins out of the Broken Hill specimen, we can actually start to relate it directly to some of these other species and test our ideas of evolutionary relationships. That was Chris Stringer of the Natural History Museum in London, here in the UK, talking with reporter Adam Levy. To find out more about the Broken Hill Skull, head over to nature.com or we'll put a link to the paper in the show notes. Later on, we'll be taking another trip to the ancient past to learn about a rainforest near the South Pole. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights. Read to you this week by Noah Baker. A new type of blood test can help detect early signs of up to 50 types of cancer. Researchers collected blood samples from more than 2,000 people with cancer and a similar number from healthy individuals. Then they scoured the samples for DNA that had entered the bloodstream and probed it for chemical indicators of cancer. The authors then developed an algorithm to predict the presence of cancer on the basis of these chemical fingerprints. For some of the deadliest cancers, like pancreatic cancer, the algorithm could detect tumour signatures in 39% of people at early stages and 92% in those with advanced cancer. The test could also predict which tissue the cancer had originated in in 96% of cases. The authors say that this simple way to detect multiple types of cancer and identify a tumour's location in the body could make successful treatment more likely. Detect that research in the Journal Annals of Oncology. Your brain is soft and squishy. I don't mean that as an insult, everyone's is, but it does mean that hard brain implants can damage it. But now researchers from MIT have developed soft implants for our soft brains. Implants can ease the symptoms of brain disorders, but typically they cause inflammation or the build-up of scar tissue. By combining nanowires with a special solvent, researchers have made a gel-like electrically conductive substance that could be used instead. This new material was used to successfully monitor a mouse's brain activity and could even be 3D printed. The researchers hope this proof of concept will allow others to rapidly develop their own implants to help treat neurological disorders. Implant that research directly into your soft brain in Nature Communications. Next up on the show, we're travelling south, far south, to latitudes near to the South Pole. It's a pretty cold and icy place right now, but it wasn't always that way. This week in Nature, a team of researchers have been finding out about the very different climate and ecology that was there in the Cretaceous period, about 90 million years ago. Reporter Dan Fox called up Johan Klages, who led the research and started by asking him exactly where this work was done. Where we work is currently the most rapidly changing part of the Antarctic ice sheet. The glaciers are retreating uh, in an accelerating pace. We took a drilling device, a C4 uh, drilling device, 
and uh, so that allowed us to drill deeper and to also at the same time go uh, deeper in time and uh, see into time frames of Antarctica that looked completely different than what we see today. And what did you find when you dug deeper? We drilled into a completely different stuff, um, which was full of fossil roots of a very fine material bearing diverse taxa of pollen and spores. And we knew we have something very special. So what did these pollen and spores reveal about the environment during this period? It must have been an environment like a swampy, temperate rainforest environment. Antarctica was much warmer than we knew before and than we expected. Today, um, the latitude of the drill location is about 73 degrees south. And But 90 million years ago, it was 82 degrees south, which means that it's only 900 kilometers away from the South Pole. And we had an, a mean annual temperature of 13 degrees Celsius, which is warmer than the annual mean temperature of Germany right now. And uh, we had summer temperatures of around 20 degrees Celsius in the air, but also in the surface water. So... What sort of things could have been living in this swampy rainforest? It, it was a diverse environment full of plants. And you have to uh, um, assume that in this kind of environment, you had, of course, dinosaurs, you had insects, uh, because we also have the record, uh, the pollen record of the first uh, flowering plants uh, that far south. So no one knew before that flowering uh, plants went so far south. And so just to kind of get a real image of this rainforest, ignoring the dinosaurs, obviously, <laughs> there's somewhere on Earth right now that would be a kind of similar appearance or makeup? I think the closest uh, environment you would look at would be the South Island of New Zealand and on the South Island, so the northwestern part. There you have um, pretty coastal near temperate rainforests. But we have to emphasize this. Um, we don't really have a modern analog for what we found because if you look at latitudes of 80, 82 degrees north or south right now, uh, it's pretty icy. <laughs> yeah. And one other thing I know about the polar regions is that they're dark for a lot of the year. So how do you think this kind of verdant uh, ecology survived in those conditions? One of the main drivers uh, is CO2. And CO2, not uh, in concentrations we see right now from just about, let's say, what, what do we have right now, 400, uh, 410 ppm. No, uh, you need something around 1,200 to 1,700 ppm CO2 in the atmosphere to, to, to get something like that. And my last question is, with global warming, are we likely to see this sort of vegetation at the South Pole again anytime soon? <laughs> we, we have to keep in mind that the plate tectonical uh, configuration at the time was completely different uh, than it is today. But at the same time, we do also everything to emit a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere. And what we showed is that excessive amounts of CO2 can be very powerful. I could imagine that uh, we get close to CO2 levels where things will get pretty interesting. But 
To get a similar environment close to the South Pole like we uh, reconstructed now, I think this is pretty unlikely. But at the same time, it shows us this already happened on the planet. We had that already. This is not fiction. This this happened. It, it makes us aware of how uh, fragile and flexible our planet is and uh, of what can happen when things go out of control. That was Johann Klages of the Alfred Wigner Institute in Bremerhaven, Germany. You can find Johann's paper over at nature.com or there will be a link in the show notes. And if you're interested to see some of what Johann found deep under Antarctica, then we've also made a video for you. Check that out over at our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash nature video channel. Finally on the show, it would be time for the news chat, but as I'm sure you know, Everything is a bit coronavirus-focused at the moment. Fear not, though, we've got a new show, Coronapod, which will update you on everything coronavirus, and that's coming out on Friday. For now, though, Noah Baker is out in a field in rural England doing his permitted daily hour of socially distanced exercise. And while he's at it, he's got another research highlight for you. I've opted for a gentle walk in the countryside for my exercise today, because new research suggests that the more steps I take, the lower my risk of dying of heart problems, cancer and other diseases, regardless of how intensively I walk. The new study focuses on a diverse group of almost 5,000 adults who wore accelerometers for three years to measure their physical activity. The researchers then used death certificates to determine which of the participants had died over the following eight years. People who took more steps each day had a significantly lower risk of death than those who walked less. But it seems that steps per minute didn't influence mortality at all. The team do say, however, that their results don't provide conclusive evidence that more daily steps cuts the risk of death, because they only observed habits rather than intervening to control them. Oh, well, maybe that's enough for this walk then. You can find that study over at the Journal of the American Medical Association. That's it for this week. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, we're at Nature Podcast, or you can send us an email to podcast at nature.com. We've been posting pictures on Twitter of our home work setups, so feel free to send us some of your own, or send us any tips for quarantine that we can share. And don't forget, if you want to see the roots of that ancient Antarctic rainforest for yourself, I've got a video for you over at youtube.com slash nature video channel. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Nick Howe. See you next time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.